Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Go get yourself a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. And remember to spell out other people the traditional way. O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. Did I spell that right? Audibletrial.com slash other people. There's over 150,000 titles to choose from. And you can listen to these audiobooks on your iPhone, your iPad, your Android, your Kindle, your MP3 player, whatever device you have. And I want to say Infinite Jest is available as an audiobook. I want to say somebody tweeted me that. Was that a joke? I need to go look this up. Apparently, it's it's a really good reading. So if you have 150 hours to kill, go get Infinite Jest on the house at audibletrial.com slash other people. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the opposite of silence. This is hopefully going to make you feel a little bit better. How are you today? What's happening? I'm Brad Listy. Uh, in Los Angeles. Good to be with you. John Brandon is my guest. His new story collection, Further Joy, is available now from McSweeney's. Nice to have him here. And uh, he and I are going to be talking in just a bit. I am back uh, at the home office after a week out of town, a week of vacation, road trip with the family up to Ojai, California. Uh, I don't know if, if you're not familiar with it. It's a little like uh, bucolic mountain town about two hours from LA not even but it it feels like you're way away it's sort of nice and we had a good time it was good to get out of the city nice to get some fresh air nice to see some uh, stars in the sky which we don't normally see because they're uh, like washed out by light pollution and obscured by police helicopters so uh, that was enjoyable my daughter enjoyed it which is the most important thing. We brought the dog. He uh, he had the best time of his life, perhaps, because there was places, you know, there were other dogs up there. He could run around. It was his seventh birthday on the uh, 26th. So, you know, 
and, and we stayed on kind of a farm, not, not like a working farm, but you know, a property big enough to have horses. There was a chicken coop. So to me, that means it was a farm, even though I know people now, you know, it's like a hipster thing to have a chicken coop, but, uh, you know, up, up there, there was like, uh, wire cages, horse stables, land. And, uh, my daughter and I would go out in the, in the morning to the chicken coop and uh, interact with the chickens. So it was that kind of thing. And frankly, uh, it's about as close to camping as my wife will ever agree to. So we had a nature experience in an actual week off. You know, I didn't work, which was good. It was good for me. I just hung out, uh, hung out with my daughter and Ojai is interesting. You know, it's like a real hippie community up there. And, you know, I spent, uh, as many of you know, I spent some time as a hippie when I was a college student for about a year and, uh, I lived in Boulder, Colorado. So sort of a hippie Mecca. I was around a lot of hippies for a, a, you know, a decent portion of my, of my, uh, young adult life. And what I forgot is that hippies can be scary, especially like in a remote country setting, you know, when you're out there in the woods <laughs> or just, you know, I was in a restaurant slash like convenience store at one point. And, uh, this, this hippie family comes in, there's like a, the, the woman is like pregnant and has dreads and her belly is like hanging out of this tank top and she's barefoot in the restaurant and her feet are dirty and there are like flies swarming around her belly and she's got her kid, this other kids with her and he's like three years old and, uh, he's dirty and barefoot and running around. And then her husband, who was the really scary one, he's got like this haunted looking face and he's got dreads down to his waist and he's barefoot. I think the barefoot thing threw me because they were, you know, <laughs> that and dreadlocks, which I think can look cool. But when you have waist length dreadlocks and then I'm seeing garbage flies, I'm thinking to myself, what, you know, you can't wash your hair properly. That's the whole thing about dreads, right? Or you're using like essential oils and then the eyes. It looked like uh, there's a little bit of emaciation happening. Uh, perhaps a, a junkie of some sort. I don't know. What I'm telling you is that it made me think about Charles Manson in a concentrated way. So there's that. And then, you know, it's also kind of a foodie town because there's that farm to table thing happening. So you have like yuppies come up there and they try to act like they're going back to nature. And I remember, uh, you know, on the last night in town, we were at a restaurant at a hotel and it was kind of our last hurrah. And, uh, this restaurant, there was a guy on guitar, like there usually is at restaurant or at, you know, hotel restaurants in like, you know, resort towns. There's like one guy with the acoustic guitar singing, you know, cover songs. And, uh, we're there, you know, my daughter's loving it because there's other kids there. They're sort of hanging out together, dancing, but there was a group of four women uh, in their forties, it looked like something out of a Nancy Myers movie. If you know what I mean, they're all dressed up. It's like a girl's weekend. They're on a, you know, they're getting spa treatments. Maybe it's a bachelorette, maybe it's whatever. And, uh, they were up there. They were very drunk on white wine and they were dancing in front of this solo guitarist who was very mediocre, <laughs> extremely mediocre. And just the scene gave me uh, an odd feeling if you can picture it because they were dancing very enthusiastically and it was uh, disproportionate to the size of the crowd in the restaurant, uh, the sound being emanated from this musician, etc. 
So there's that happening too. It's like those two forces juxtaposed against one another. And to us and me somewhere. I don't know where I fall on that spectrum. Probably somewhere in the middle. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest, uh, once again, is John Brandon. His new story collection, Further Joy, is out there from McSweeney's. Fun talking with him. Uh, I think you guys will enjoy this. It's nice to be back. And uh, let's get started. This is John Brandon, and his new book, once again, is called Further Joy. Uh, I'm in Memphis. Um, and I'm, uh, <laughs> if anybody knows Memphis, I'm near where Highland and Poplar meet. And I just uh, got in the car and pulled off onto a shady lane here. Okay, um, so you, you, be... you're in your car. Yeah, I'm in the rental car. Okay, okay, yeah, no, this is, you're like the second person. I don't think I had interviewed anybody who was in their car until like a couple of weeks ago, and now you're the second person, so maybe this is becoming a trend. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a very controlled environment. Yeah, I like uh, it, I, I like <laughs> it. I, are, you, are you warm? I feel like Memphis is warm. I, it, it's, uh, no, it's only about maybe 80 degrees here today, but I'm parked in the shade, so okay. I should be good. Okay, and you're hot. People might, you know, come out of their house and ask me what I'm doing sitting outside <laughs> their house, but other than that, I should be okay. All right, and you're hydrated. I want you to be hydrated. Let's see. Yep, yep, I have some, I have some water here. Okay, so um, I've been reading about you, and uh, it sounds like you've moved around a lot and have done um, a lot of different, you know, a lot of regional writing, for lack of a better way of putting it, when it comes to your fiction. Uh, you know, place is obviously important for all writers, but I think for some, uh, it, it's like a particular, uh, you know, fixation or a particular point of interest in terms of getting things going. So, like, can you talk a little bit about, like, the places that you've lived and, and that you've written about? Um, yeah, uh, I think for a long time, you know, my, my whole kind of childhood, um, even through college, I, I didn't travel at all. You know, we just, we, we were in Florida and we, uh, we'd make trips to Memphis. I have a, um, my dad's family's from here. There's not that many of them left now, but we'd do that. And there was one time we were supposed to take this big trip out west you know, and see everything out west, and I had just uh, started driving. I think I may have just had my learner's permit, and so about a half an hour into the drive, you know, half an hour from home, I wrecked us, 
So <laughs> we didn't wind up going on that trip. So, you know, it was my only chance to see the rest of the country, and I blew it. Well, so wait, was um, it, was, did you, you totaled the car that you were going to drive? It was going to be a road trip? Yeah, it was going to be this road trip out, out west. And um, my parents, a Suzu Trooper, and we had, we had a, a, a pop-up camper thing behind it. And what I, you know, I sort of didn't know. I mean, it was a reaction, but also you hand, would handle these things better if you weren't 15. But a, an animal ran out in front of me, and I just did this real, you know, this hard, fast kind of swerve, which it would be okay, except if you're hauling a trailer, then the trailer just starts kind of going back and forth like a pendulum. Yeah. And then eventually just kind of pulled us off the road. Um, and nobody got hurt, but the, the car got banged up, and then the, the the pop-up trailer, you know, took the worst of it. So that changed our plans, and then I think we we just wound up going to um, the mountains up in Tennessee, okay, or something instead. Yeah, we used to do that um, when, I, when I was a kid. Go to the Smokies and stay in a, like all of my aunts and uncles and cousins. We would rent this chalet, which when I was a kid was awesome. But when I think back on it, I think of like all those people packed into one. Like relatively small place. It was like, what were we doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, it couldn't have been as awesome for the adults. No, that's exactly exactly. There was a lot of there was a lot of. Uh, I, feel like, I feel like there was a lot of beer and wine in in you know in effect during those trips. But the kids had a great time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and you know, you say you didn't travel much, but you were in Florida, so I feel like that's where everybody, uh, at least you know, east of the Mississippi, seems to consider like the place you go on vacation or whatever that's what it was like for me in the midwest so um you know like where whereabouts in florida like were you beachy or were you inland um we were we were on the coast but not but not beachy it's uh it's pasco county which is um the county just north of pinellas county uh, so pinellas county's got all the beaches though that's clearwater st petersburg and all that yeah um but then I'm from the one north where the beaches kind of give out, and it's more, you know, swampy, mangrovey kind of thing. So, you know, when we went to the beach, we'd drive south an hour um, to, to get to the beaches, even though we we were on the coast. Uh, so, yeah, that was, I mean, there, there wasn't a whole, that, it wasn't a bad place to grow up. Um, there wasn't really anything going on, um, but it wasn't bad, you know just played sports um you know there, there were the arts were not present in any way okay and like um, you're, you're, what like what did your folks do like were they I'm, i take it they were not artistic uh professionally no no my dad uh is an electrician and my mom was a secretary back then and then she's over the years you know taken courses and worked her way up and she just retired she was a manager at an insurance agency um so yeah they they were uh they they didn't do the university thing or anything um and in just the town there i mean it was just it wasn't anything like it wasn't a small town you know it wasn't it's hard to classify because it didn't have that that down home feel of a small town it wasn't rural where anybody would grow crops or anything and it wasn't even a suburb because at that time it was too far in Tampa, now they have an expressway that would make that possible. And it was just, uh, you know, it was just a, a place. It was just a bunch of <laughs> streets with houses. 
Um, but, you know, there was never a concert or a reading or anything like that. We didn't think about those sorts of things. And the ocean was there? Uh, like, I mean, like, I'm trying to picture this because I always think, like, if you're on the coast of Florida, there's got to be a beach of some sort. But, like, was this just, like, like a swamp that, like, bled into the ocean? <laughs> that, that It was that in some cases. Um, and then it would just be kind of, kind of a, a marsh, you know, a marsh area. Um, you know, and then there'd be places where, where there was sand, you know, from fringing the salt, but it would, it would be really muddy and, and snaky and brackish and stuff. Yeah. You, de- um, you dealing with alligators down there? Yeah. Yeah. There'd be, there'd be alligators. Um, yeah. I mean, I live in Minnesota now and obviously that's the two extremes but one of the there's all these little things you notice that are different I mean, one of the things is we're in minnesota and they of course they have a lot of lakes as, as we all famously know but you there's a lake and you know i have two little little boys and they i'll just let them run up to the lake there's nothing there's no threat <laughs> I mean, in florida you don't you don't do that you don't let toddlers you know near <laughs> near the the edge of the water. Yeah, no, I was, I was, I was watching. You know, it was like some like Animal Planet or something like that, and it was a show about the alligators of Florida and how, you know, they're encroaching and getting closer to residential areas. And it was about these attacks, and it's like an elderly woman just like going for a walk in her neighborhood, and this alligator just like you know shoots out of a waterway and and mauls her, kills her. You know, I mean that stuff happens. Yeah, yeah, they get they get desperate in certain seasons. I guess if there's a dry season, that's when they start getting more bold, and they'll that's when you'll see them in strange places because they're trying to find uh, more water. So that's when you see them crossing streets and stuff like that. Um, but I think the most common thing is is they get little dogs. Oh that's, man, that's very that's very commonplace. And then they, you know, when they finally there's one in a neighborhood or something been around a long time they finally have to kill it inside inside its belly they'll find all these dog tags and collars oh, you know that it couldn't digest oh, from, from over the years of all the dogs <laughs> jesus that's, my dog yeah, my dog is little he wouldn't stand a chance like my dog is uh he would just would not stand a chance against a, even a larger dog let alone an alligator but um i guess yeah. i guess you can't yeah. you can't let your dog out i mean what do you I mean I guess these dogs are just like roaming around in backyards, and alligators come up and snatch them. Yeah, I mean wherever wherever there's there's water, you just you just can't be sure what's in there. You know, there's there's the, and there's the snakes that are, and I guess most all the southern states where there's water have the the water moccasins and stuff. But yeah, I mean it wasn't it wasn't a thing you thought about all the time. You weren't always thinking, "Oh, we're going to get eaten by alligators." I would have been thinking about it if I, life. if I lived down there. I would have been but, thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's what you think. If you lived down there, you would just sort of get used to it. Yeah. But but you, you just you just get trained to to not just you know absentmindedly wander over by some water that that you don't know about. Yeah. So, so did you ever square off with one? Like, what's the what's like? Give me some wild animal interactions. <laughs> That you've had. No, I I never did, but we we knew a kid when we were growing up. Um, he was my younger brother's friend. Really, he was you know everybody knows that one you know, just crazy dude. He was just a nut. And there was one behind this other friend of ours house in their in their little lake, and it wasn't it wasn't huge. You know, it was maybe 
six or seven foot or something. But, you know, he, he would mess with this thing and, and try to wrestle it, all this stuff. And he never, he never got hurt. He never hurt. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a real big alligator, but. Yeah, my dad. Um, my dad went to uh, college in Louisiana and was like in a fraternity, and this is like the 1960s or whatever. And he was at LSU, and I guess they were having some party. And he always tells this story about like a couple of his like crazy like Southern fraternity brothers like put him in the back of a pickup truck. I guess he was like a pledge or something, <laughs> and uh, they took him out uh, into like the swamp. And they like these guys went into the swamp and like got an alligator. And like tied it up and put it in the back of the truck and then took it back to the fraternity house and like had it, you know, I don't know, on display for this party or something. <laughs> but that seems insane yeah. to me. I don't even, you know, I don't even know how you begin to like do that. But apparently these guys grew they, up. Yeah, they have the right equipment. You know, they have that that steel band that goes around the snout and all that stuff. They, if you go to a, the Indian reservation down in South Florida. That's one of their attractions. They'll have somebody wrestle an alligator. And in that case, it's usually a big, a big alligator, and they just have their bare hands, you know. But they they know what they're doing. Even but like, is the snout ba- like bound, or is it like just a full on like jaw? Yeah, no, it's 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 free. It's free, and they'll they'll kind of trick it into into snapping its jaw shut, and then and then they can grab a hold of it. Um, I'm I'm getting into territory that I'm not an expert on, but apparently <laughs> you and me both. when they close their mouth, they have incredible strength. Yeah. But they can't, they don't, they don't opening their mouth. So once, you know, once you kind of, they kind of get a hold of their jaw, as long as they can keep a hold of it, it can't, it can't open its mouth again. And so, you know, they kind of know how to lull it and then kind of trick it into closing its mouth and then, then get around behind it and do the whole deal. Damn. But no, I was I was never aspiring to uh, to get close to the alligators. Yeah, no, I mean, like, not to like, I don't want to beat this too hard, but I remember uh, reading an article about like a hurricane off the coast of Florida that swept through, like it swept up all these like like python. Like, a, I think people were letting their pet snakes go into like the, you know, into the uh, Everglades and like the swamps and stuff, and these things are growing to like enormous sizes, and then. You know, this hurricane came through and blew like pet stores and destroyed them and swapped. You know, all these like reptiles got dispersed into like Florida and started breeding. And there's just like, there's an incredible amount of crazy wildlife flourishing down there, <laughs> at least for, according to this yeah. this article that I read. And I mean, I remember putting the, putting the magazine down and, and being like blown away by it and like a little freaked out. Yeah, usually when I hear that stuff, I feel like it's Miami. It's um, it's it's more South Florida, and they, they you know they have these illegal snakes and exotic snakes and all that, and they wind up, they wind up free. I remember when we were in the Everglades, they were telling us a story which I can't vouch for the truth of, but that one of these huge boa constrictors uh, got loose, and it was living in the Everglades, you know, which they can do fine. That's, that's kind of like their habitat, but anyway, it got tangled up with an alligator and they were sort of just the right size to not be able to kill each other. And they were just kind of locked in place, you know, and they, they, the rangers or whatever found them and, you know, didn't really know what to do about it. And they were, and it was just hours and hours and hours that they were just kind of locked in, you know, I guess that alligator's 
and really naturally not supposed to ever see that snake. That snake's not ever supposed to see that alligator. They just, it just didn't work. They just couldn't kill each other. Well, so what, like the, the snake was like coiled like around the alligator's body or did the alligator have like yeah. half the snake in its mouth? Well, I'm not sure about that. Um, I was taking it to think that, I don't know if they were trying to eat each other or just defend, you know, defend their territory or what, but yeah, the, the, you know, the snake kind of had its grips on the alligator and then the alligator was kind of trying to chew away at the snake also. And they, neither of them was getting the upper hand. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sure that that is an exaggerated story. <laughs> I don't know what the, I don't know what the, the kernel of truth was that it grew out of, but yeah. you know, they, they definitely have a bunch of problems. I guess they have something like that almost everywhere in the country now, but they have a bunch of problems with reptiles that aren't supposed to be down there. Well, and just people getting these pets. I mean, like, you know, there's certain animals that are good for domestic life, and there are certain animals that are not. And so when I hear about people having mon yeah. like having monkeys and crazy lizards and stuff, it's like, well, you know, what are you doing? Unless you really are into it, and you're like, you know, that's your area of study or something. It seems like a bad idea, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think that. That hardly ever works out well in the long run. No. Right, it's either they they get away or they have to let them go, or else the animal mauls somebody or gets depressed and dies or something. Well, yeah, I mean that's the thing because like you know you have it. I mean people are bad enough with their dogs; they just take their dog to the pound or they let the dog loose. I mean not everybody, but a lot of people do this, obviously. But like you have a snake, and like suddenly you got to move, and the new landlord doesn't want a snake. Like, what are you going to do with a snake? I mean, I guess maybe there are some like you know places that would take them or people that would take them. But I, I can see a lot of people, especially living down in Florida, who just like drive out into the woods and chuck it, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, so, okay. So Florida, I mean, we should get off animals. <laughs> I feel like we've covered yeah. that. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I'm, I'm curious about Florida. This is a, it's a fascinating state. And uh, you mentioned that you grew up kind of playing sports and you weren't in like a super, um, you know, I mean, it's a, it's got its culture, but it wasn't like a, a literary place um you know there wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of artistic options in terms of you know concerts readings and everything like you said so um you know what kind of athlete were you like how big of a role uh, did sports play in like your early identity oh i mean i'd say that was the biggest thing it was that was kind of it seemed like what everybody did um you know i played soccer and basketball and tennis Mostly, um, but then you just, you know, also organize, but then you just go outside and play whatever anybody was playing every day, wiffle ball and stuff. Um, and I, I really don't have any way to say how this happened, but, but in 11th grade, I started, I started reading, you know, on top of what we were supposed to read for English class. And I didn't, I don't think I, I knew at that time why or that that was that was even good you know <laughs> there was a, um, anything to be gained from that i just i just found that i liked it and uh that that year was kind of when my my interests were changed i kind of started fading away from in sports and and i would just read all the time and and um you know do some recreational drugs here and there and and um you know just kind of became a non-athlete in, in that 
I find that, that I find that I find that like uh, like uh, you know adolescence slash like eleventh grade slash uh, books slash recreational drug use here and there tend to diminish one's interest in sports. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've yeah, talk- yeah, just kind of all at all at once, you know. And I just and then I, I think senior year I didn't play, I didn't wind up playing any anything and wanted to play any sports for the school. Okay, so, um, but, like, uh, when you say you don't know why it happened, like, you didn't have a teacher who were, who was passing you good books, or there's nothing you can point to? You just, like, mysteriously started picking well, something up? Or was there, like, a, a single book that, you know, you remember reading and being like, you know, this is awesome, I want more? I can remember, I can remember always being, being one of the better students in, in my English classes, Always, and I remembered that I understood what was going on in there fully. And, you know, I never understood what was going on in, in say, a math class. I mean, once it went past geometry, I mean, I just, I, I didn't have, I didn't understand 5% of it. I mean, I just had no idea what they were saying. I, I always, you know, I felt much more at home in the, in the English classes, and I would, I would enjoy writing. Um, and I, I mean, I think I guess, I guess I just, I just liked reading what was assigned to me enough that it, it finally clicked that I could, I could go to the little mall that we had in town and go to the Walden books, um, you know, and there were more, there, there were books there. So, so who, you know, so I, I who, are, who were some, I, who were some of your early authors? Like, what were some of these assigned books that that triggered you? Well, I don't know. It was it was just it would be just a Norton anthology, you know. So it would have probably just all kinds of stuff like a rose for Emily and you know that that sort of thing. That's just firmly, firmly in the canon, um, you know. And and, I, and then you know I, I didn't have instruction on what to read outside of, of what was in the textbooks, um, but I I would go up to that bookstore and it was it was small you know if you can remember back before there was a barnes and nobles and all that it was just those little bookstores in the mall right uh you know walden books and well, there's a couple others b dalton that sure. sort of thing sure yeah and there, there's not really that many books in there so i would just kind of gravitate toward the the fiction section and just take whatever Whatever they had, and and you know, I just had no way. So I, I think I just kind of read, read the, uh, all the Kerouac that they had. You know, I had the wherewithal just to know. Okay, let me do Kerouac, and I read all that, and then I would find the next guy. You know, Hemingway, and read what they had of that, and then you know, there'd be just random bestsellers too. So I think at that time, that must have been when. Uh, American Psycho came out or something because they had that and I, you know, I picked that up and I was, you know, there's nothing like that in the Norton anthology. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, right. You know, thematically maybe, but just not not graphic. You know, I didn't know that you could just say things like that. So it was just, you know, it was just this um, kind of hit or miss thing that that, that I was doing and, um, you know, I. I, I would get stuff that I just couldn't understand at all. You know, I'd get, I'd get like Nietzsche and I'd be re- reading that, you know, and just, you know, I'm processing the words that there, I just don't understand any of it, but I'd read the whole book in that state of, of not understanding any of it. 
Do you, do you yeah, think that yeah. you think that you got anything? Because I've done that before, and I think there's something to be said for you know the timing, obviously, of when you come to a book, uh, or when it comes to you. And like you can pick up a book by Nietzsche, or you can pick up a book by whoever, and read it at a certain stage of your life, and it doesn't register. And then, you know, ten or fifteen years later, you pick up that same book, and it, it makes perfect sense or something. But when you when you read it in that state, because I think most people, if they read a book and like ten pages into it, they don't understand a single word, they chuck it. But to to keep going all the way through is unique. And like, do you feel in hindsight that maybe you got something from it or do you think it was a total loss? No, I mean, I like to think it's just, it's one of those things where you're, you're, you're catching these little glimpses, but, but you, you can't put them together. It's not really coherent. Um, but you know, it's like you're getting, you're getting just enough. There's something in it that's, that's turning you on a little bit. But at the end, if someone said, what was that about? You know, you have to say, I, I can't tell you. <laughs> I couldn't tell you what that was about. Um, I mean, I think it was mostly it was mostly over my over my head, but that also that also kind of attracted me, right? Too. I mean, because at that point you're 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 uh, so one thing you're you're wondering, you know, coming from Newport Ritchie, it it feels like you don't have access to any of this. So one thing you're like, what what are they really super smart weird geniuses? What what are they say i want to take a look at that right and then well so good instincts good intellectual instincts yeah thank you well i think so i mean you know because i think but i think a lot of writers i mean it's 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 interesting to hear you like articulate it but i think that's probably our you know a common experience for writers is to you know be of a certain age and, and it could really be any age but especially adolescence and to be like reaching like way above your uh grade level uh, you know, on instinct, you know, but having heard of like something, you know, having heard of Nietzsche where, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, it's not like I had some big education in Nietzsche or, or any of these great thinkers when I was in high school, but like you hear of them in passing or you read about them somewhere. And then, you know, suddenly you've got that book in your hand and you think to yourself, like, I need to know this. <laughs> and then, yeah, you know, you yeah. Sp- and I think at that point it could even have been something like, you know, I'm reading my Kerouac, and the characters are talking about Nietzsche. Well, so right. then I go, okay, that's the next. That's the next one. I have to check him out. And then, you know, you you kind of would, would. There's not enough to. You don't know what to choose yourself. So anything that's mentioned, that's put up on your radar screen, you kind of go, okay, I'll try that one next. Well, no, I think that's. I mean, I think that's the way uh, readers often. Uh, you know, it's like the genealogy of your influences. And I think that that's the way that I've probably found most of the books that I've loved is by reading a book, loving it, and then reading more from that author. And then if they don't mention, if, they, if they're not name dropping within the work itself, then you wind up like reading interviews or nonfiction about that author and you find out who their influences are. And then you just start working your way through that. And, you know, typically if you love something by someone uh, and you read what they love, there's going to be something there. Yeah. So, yeah, that usually does work. So, what did your folks think? I mean, was it was this something that was like really obvious to everybody around you that you had suddenly made this literary turn, or was it something that you were kind of doing on the sly? Like, did it was it noticed in your household? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it was it was definitely noticed that I wasn't playing sports. I and I think I think my mom was worried about me. Um, I mean, my my dad just kind of in the way of dads, I don't think was going to panic about it or anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think my mom kind of knew that my habits were, were getting odd and stuff like that. But 
you know, I was still I was still on a track to go to go to the university. So for them, I mean, that was that meant everything was fine, you know, in a way because they had never done that, and especially it, I think the shine has come off a little bit, but especially at that time, you know, going to college was just like, you know. That's the greatest. It's just like, yeah. of course you're going to go to college. I mean, that's all that was talked about. You got to go to college. You got to go to college. Yeah. You got to go to college. Yeah. My parents, my you dad, know, my, so. da- my dad was the same. My parents were the same way. My parents, uh, my dad was the first in his family to go to college. And so he has this like really romanticized version of it. But it's interesting. And, and you know, not without reason. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to diminish the importance of education, but I think when you said the shine has come off the diamond a little bit, it strikes at an interesting point because I really feel that, you know, in the younger writers that I talk to, younger people that I know, just looking around, kind of reading, like, the value, and especially in, in light of, like, the recent economic uh, troubles, you know, you look around at young people who are uh, of college age, and it's not the same, you know? Like, a lot of them are saying no to it because they don't want the debt, or a lot of them have the debt and regret ever going in the first place because they can't get a job to pay off the debt, and, you know, that messes with people's perception of it, and not without reason, I think. Yeah, yeah. At that time, it was just you know go to college at all costs, and so I think it, in that way we were aligned because they they just wanted me to go to college, and I desperately wanted to go to college, you know, to to get to get somewhere else to see something else. So I think that probably kind of smoothed smoothed it over. I mean, they weren't gonna they weren't gonna take me to counseling because I was reading. Too much, right? Um, but I, I think they they were just a little bit, you know, wondering what was happening. Were you doing um, when you say about when you talk about drugs? Like, were you like a big pothead or something, or was it pretty mild? No, I wasn't. I was not a big pothead. I mean, I, I smoked it plenty, but no, that wasn't my thing. I, I used to do acid though. Oh, okay. I, I did that with you know uh, a lot of weekends. Um, until I just kind of felt like I'd seen it enough and, you know, knew what it was about. Um, that was kind of my high school drug, you know, aside from just a little bit of other things here and there. Did you get anything from um, it? I mean, do you, do you look back on it fondly? Do you feel like it had like a, a big positive impact or how do you, how do you evaluate its impact in retrospect? Well, I think it was more, it was more the way the nights would be. Then it was the effect of the drugs. And there, there was a, there was effects of them, but when I look back, it is I do look back on it fondly, and it's 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 just the you know being that age and that having these these crazy nights that you you know you can't go to sleep on that you know until nine the next morning or something. Right. So you just get into these, these places and these times and night and these situations that were foreign. To you, and you know, at that age, that was just really kind of exciting and eye-opening. You know, even if you just wound up, you know, sitting on the hood of your car, but you're in some, you know, some part of the woods, you know, in the next county, and it, and it, the sun sun is rising. You know, it's just it, that that was always that was always what I was looking for. It wasn't like I wanted to sit down on a couch and experience the effects of LSD. It was it was more just you know I knew that it'd be a long weird cool night right that you know, that would be different and memorable. I was going to say if that's, if, if, you're, if, you, if, if you're a young person and you're itching to get out of your like uh, hometown, 
and you know you can you can stay there and drop acid and it will seem like a completely different place <laughs> yeah 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 and it, it did yeah and and sometimes just just being awake at hours that you're not normally awake um you know and and you don't know during those nights you wind up meeting people that you, <laughs> you didn't know or I mean, it was just there was so much newness to them i think that's probably why i wound up favoring that over over smoking pot um because I, mean, I i had as i think most everyone did i had those friends who did that all the time i mean every day just all the time smoking pot and but that they would just play video games right you know and order pizza and stuff so I don't know. It never intrigued me all that much. Did you ever have a bad trip? Did you ever like have a really bad time on it? Uh, once, once I I did. I just took too much one time, but it wasn't it wasn't any of these gruesome you know horror stories or anything like that. It was just more like I had to just sit still, you know, like in a corner and be with myself <laughs> just and just for, just, know, just, hug, hours. just hug yourself and rock back and forth for six hours you know yeah yeah but it it wasn't terrifying to the point where i well i was aware of what was happening okay like, you know yeah i think there's that there's that point of where you think you're you know you're going to go into psychosis or something because you you think something's happening it's not it wasn't like that i knew i knew okay i took too much right this isn't good but I'm just going to sit here right? and the time will pass and the morning will come. So it was absolutely no fun, but, um, but it wasn't one of those terrible hallucinating deals that you hear about. Well, yeah. So you're a rationalist. That was kind of how I was like, I never, and maybe it's just a function of never having like some sort of massive overdose, but it was always like, I always had a foot in reality. Like I was like, okay, I know I'm on something. So if things are weird, that's because I'm on something. And I feel like I've been around people who completely lose their shit and they, they forget that they're on something. They just think they're in some sort of parallel reality or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I never had that. I always, I was always still, I had that one foot in reality all the time. Well, there's still time, you know, <laughs> we can get that done eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So you, you did get off to college. You went to the University of Florida? Yep. Was it everything that you thought it would be? Um, yeah, it was great. I mean, Gainesville to me was just fantastic after, after being in Newport Ritchie, obviously it's a college town, so it's not a you know big city or anything, but at the same time, there's everything there that, that I could have wanted. You know, there was just all, all the different types of people that I, that I, you know, wouldn't encounter in Pasco County. Um, and you know, every, everybody doing all these different things. And, and I, I went there and I, I just, I knew I was going to be an English major just because I like to read and I was horrible at anything with math. So, you know, I wasn't, I don't think I was real psyched to be an English major, but I just was kind of like, well, this will, this will be the thing that I can do well. And I want to be up all night reading you know, Dickens. I don't want to be up all night trying to make equations work out. Um, so, so you know, I got started on that, and then sophomore year is when I took my first fiction writing class, an intro to fiction class, and um, and it was a workshop. So we had to write 
two stories during the semester review workshop. And as soon as I started writing that first story, you know, it was the first time I had done that, and it just felt so different to me because I was really, really invested in it, you know, and just thinking about it all the time. And there hadn't been anything that had come up in school that had been that way for me. But I just, you know, I just kind of knew that this was different. And I, you know, I just worked so hard on it, revised it and everything. And then uh, the, the, the teacher gave me, you know, lots of um, encouragement and good feedback and everything. And I think I just kind of knew at that point that I was, I was going to gonna try and, and do that because, you know, A, there was nothing else. That, that kind of made it easy. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, it's like you can't do anything else. It, it seems like you're pretty good at this, so it, it just seemed like a natural thing, and I never really had to make a decision about it. I just, you know, from then on, I would take a, a writing workshop every semester. So did you? And that would be the class that I put my energy into. Okay, and so, so did, I, I was going to say, like, were you writing outside of the context of workshops, or when you were an undergraduate, was like the workshop the structure within you, within which you did the fiction work, or did you, were you starting to kind of like noodle around with it on your own? Um, I guess, I guess a little of both because I, I wouldn't, I wasn't writing more than workshop, I think. It was kind of a lot. It was, you know, two full-length stories a semester, um, which is not a little bit. Um, so there was enough there, but also at the same time, it was getting to the point where I would start writing something that shouldn't be for the workshop. You know, I'd write the first 45 pages of a failed novel and I would hand it in to workshop, you know, where everybody's handing in these nine-page, you know, little stories. And <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I was kind of, I was kind of outgrowing it um, at the same time as I was, I was benefiting from, you know, having that that setup where you had a, a it was due, and then a couple months later, another one's due, a couple months later, another one's due. So, okay, so then you get through college, uh, and then, I mean, like, the decision was made, I'm going to be a writer somehow, uh, professionally? Was it a really, was it a really cut and dry thing for you, or is it something that you sort of... Yeah, just... yeah, I just, I, I just knew I was going to, yeah, I knew I, that that was what I was going to go towards, um, and there was, you know, some people are multi-talented, so I think they have a harder time choosing or they even you know sometimes they they spread themselves too thin because they're good at other things but this is the only thing i was good at and the only thing i like to do so it just was a no-brainer and when when i was getting ready to graduate you know i i just i didn't really think of anything except going to an mfa program because to me that represented just having more time to write how did you know and, about? You know, how did you know about it, it though? Like, did did you, one of your teachers tell you you should get an MFA, or were you hearing around the around campus or something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Florida has a has a great you know MFA program there, and so the the people teaching the classes you know are have are linked up with the MFA program. So yeah, I would I would hear it talked about, and I got the idea that you know that was something to do. Um, and of course, a lot of people advise you to not go straight into your MFA to take some time off and and see some things and do some living, um, which I think is good advice. I, mean, I think that's probably the right thing to be telling people. 
but at the same time, I just kind of didn't, I didn't have the imagination to know what that would even be. Uh, you know, I mean, I just, I was just kind of, I, I never was savvy about anything. Um, you know, I just, I, I didn't know what, what I would, what I would go do. I wasn't feeling like, okay, I can go to China and teach English or whatever. I was just <laughs> thinking, okay, if I, if I don't go to an MFA program, I'm going to go back to Newport Ritchie and I'm going to work on it. And that doesn't seem like... You were going to wait. You, you, know, were, you cut out there. You were going to work where? In Newport Ritchie? Probably back at, at, at like the casino boat. Right. You know, in Newport Ritchie or something, which didn't represent to me, you know, getting a taste of, of life. It just seemed like, you know, I'm going to go back there. So, and you know, I mean, you don't have to... I didn't have any money but I don't, you know, you don't have to have money at that point to do something cool, go overseas in some way. But I just didn't have the imagination. You know, I just, I just was like, well, this this MFA program, it's going to be in like Arizona or St. Louis or something. That's that's the equivalent of going to China for me. You know, I've barely been out in Florida. So when I went to St. Louis, to you know, that's a big northern city made out of brick you know to me that that was you know getting out <laughs> getting out in the world but no i never thought of doing anything else I just, like yeah if i go there i'll have more time to write um so and you, went, those, you, you went to washington at st louis yeah mm-hmm. and they do they pay i mean yeah. like because not all mfa programs do like did you get money to go to school or was it uh, a combination or yeah no i mean they they paid they paid my way i don't I didn't come out of it with any money, um, but I didn't spend any money either. It was just, you know, you just had to live, had to live kind of on a pretty strict budget, um, you know, and have roommates and stuff. And if you did that, you could you could get by. Um, so I didn't have to take out loans um, for that or anything. And, and, you, um, and you feel like you got a good education in the MFA? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I did, but I, I also feel like I, I would have been happy no matter what. You know, I, I wasn't expecting them to to do something magical for me, so then I'd be able to be a published writer. Um, you know, I, I I wanted the I wanted the time there and to be around people who knew what to read and and could talk about you know writing in ways that make me smarter about it um and then you know the instruction that i got he was almost like a bonus you know i was i was just so grateful to any for any instruction that they gave and feedback that the that the instructors gave um but i don't i don't know if it was if that's just me or if times have changed you know even though it was only i don't know 15 years ago or something but I mean, I, I wasn't going into it going, okay, these these teachers better better coach me up so right. I can do this. Well, that's I th- their job. No, but that sounds healthy again because I feel like uh, a lot of times people do go into MF or some people go into MFA programs with unrealistic expectations for what it means. I mean, it, like ultimately, I think uh, it's a place to network and meet other writers, and it's and it's a place to get a little bit of instruction, but mostly it's a place to hide out and do your work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's how that's that's how I thought of it for sure. Um, and just the fact that I was somewhere different, you know, somewhere cold and and brick, and I had to buy a winter 
jacket, which I'd never had before. All that was, you know, kind of a cool part of it. And then I'm, and then meeting new people was a cool part of it. And, and, you know, I was just, I was just happy to be there. And I did have good instructors who put a lot, you know, a lot into things. So I, I was lucky that way, but no, I mean, I wasn't going into it thinking about anything else except, except writing. You know, I wasn't even thinking about teaching at that point. I, I knew, I knew that probably I was going to end up teaching in some fashion. It was probably that was out there. Um, if, if you're going to go down that road and be a writer, but I wasn't at my MFA going, okay, now I'm getting experience for teaching and I'm going to learn how to put together my CV um, and all that, which, which I think nowadays, you know, that's a big part of it. And that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, you got to learn how to do those things to survive. But I, I just, I was never savvy in those ways. And I was, I was just there, you know, I wrote a ton. I mean, I'm, well, I'm was, pretty sure I wrote more than anybody else. Well, I was going to ask yeah. you, like, it sounds like, you know, like this is your thing. And I, in, in, a, in a way that like you described is, um, exclusive in, in a way that it might not be for other writers who might have, you know, multiple interests or whatever, like you really locked in on it. So when you got, and when you got to the point that you were going up to St. Louis to get your MFA, uh, had you already, had you already really dug in and, and gotten, uh, a disciplined, uh, like ritual for how you did the work or was that where you really found that in terms of scheduling yourself and, or do you schedule, you know, do you schedule yourself? Well, I, yeah, I think before, before I went there, I never really had a schedule and, and I also had never written that much, you know, it's kind of what they say in sports, you know, when you go from say high school to, to college, you think you were working hard, but you're going to find out that you weren't, you know, it's kind of that sort of thing. I mean, I, I felt like I was putting a lot into it in, in undergrad, but then when you, when you get to grad school and you have it's set up for you to have time to do that. I know a lot of them aren't now. They give they give the students so much else to do, but mine was. Um, you know, it was set up where you had time. So, you know, I would I would write. I, I mean, I'm sure I pretty much wrote every day while while I was there, and it was it was easy then. There was nothing stopping you. It's it's later later in life when you have a family and a job and all that that. You've got to be a lot. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you. I mean, like when it comes to doing read, you know, doing the reading and doing the writing, which are the two primary things you have to do in this line of work. Uh, ha, you know, do you ever have trouble doing it? Does it ever resist you, or do you ever not feel like reading a book? Do you ever not feel like sitting down, or is it something that, like, you know, is just genuinely enjoyable for you on a consistent basis? Um. I, I don't, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty, it's, I don't know if in, I'm trying to think what <laughs> I would say it was enjoyable, but no, I don't, I don't dread it or anything. Um, you know, it's so, it's so hard to get time during the semester. Um, you know, now that I'm, I'm teaching, it's hard to get time during the semester to write. Um, that kind of gets, gets pushed to the side, um, and then on 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 the break, you know, on summer break and long winter break and stuff, you you write more. Um, but you know, to me, that's the thing you just got to have. I guess it's tricky, you know, because you 
you don't want to be letting yourself off the hook. You don't want to be, be, you know, be okay with the fact that you're not getting time to write for a certain stretch. But at the same time, you, you can't indulge in, you know, beating yourself up and, you know, or, or getting upset about it. You know, you just got to take advantage of the time when it comes, you know. So I've, I've kind of seen now what a luxury it used to be. And I was, I was in grad school and I could just write all the time. And then uh, for the rest of my 20s, um, maybe even a little into my 30s, I guess, you know, six, seven years, um, my wife is an occupational therapist. Um, she was my girlfriend at the time. But she, after we were all, both all done with school and everything, we were just living in Chattanooga. And it was, it's a great place. And Chattanooga is lovely. I love to live there. But at that time, we were just so young, and we were like, well, we're not going to just stay here forever, right? We're not just going to live in the place we live now forever. So what are we going to do? So she got onto this traveling thing that's kind of like a traveling nurse. Um, so we would move, you know, every three months, and and I would just get a, a labor job. This is when the economy was good. I could get, you know, I'd go to a temp agency that had me out somewhere the next day, and I mean, it was, I wrote so much because I would just, I'd get the early shift. I'd go from six to two or seven to three and there'd be nothing required of my brain right. at all. It right. would just be loading, loading things or, you know, <laughs> lifting things. Yeah. And so I would just kind of work, work through things that I was work, you know, writing on at the time, come home, you know, take a little nap, eat something. And then I could just write for hours in the evening and, you know, I mean, I, looking back, I just, I had, did not have the proper appreciation for, for that, for having that time. You know, it's kind of, you know, it's one of those things where you get published and you get a teaching job and all that. I mean, that's like what you were trying to do the whole time. So you're happy about it. But at the same time, those things make it where you, you don't have any time to yourself and somebody always wants something from you. Right. Well, you and know, it's funny too. Days, it, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, like, it's funny how, how you know, when you're doing the thing and you're you're living in so, a certain way, uh, you know, whatever you're, you're working some shit job, like loading boxes and then writing in the evenings. I mean, it's a long day. You're, you're essentially working two jobs, but they, they happen to have like a nice complementary relationship because one like doesn't require anything of the body, and uh, the other one doesn't require anything of the mind or whatever. But uh, what I find is that like it's easy to feel nostalgic about. Uh, you know, writing uh, a, like a writing project in the past in a way that it is often not easy to feel when you're in the thick of it. <laughs> uh, do you know? What yeah, I'm definitely. It's I, I, I don't know. Hindsight's twenty twenty, I guess. But yeah, I mean, as, as the years were going by, and I was getting into my late twenties, you know, pushing thirty, and I had nothing published. You know, I mean, that was a terrible situation. So believe me, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> complaining that I. I got published. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, looking back and it, it's just, it was just amazing how, how free my mind was to, to devote to writing. You know, I, we, it, dude, I was always way behind on anything with computers, but I had a computer that I dragged around with me that I just did word processing on and we would have to move every three months. So we wouldn't even bother to hook up the, the internet, you know, which is unimaginable now, but this was, 
whatever, you know, 15 years ago or something. No wonder you got so much work there. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'd go, we'd go to the library a couple times a week to check our emails. And, you know, a lot of times I'd have none, you know, (laughs) and this, you know, I knew I didn't care. And it's okay. Checked it. And now what you were talking about, you know, reading and writing, if there's something I dread, I think it's that. I think it's checking my email, you know, because that's when it's like you, you find out what unexpected seven things you have to address. Right. You know, that day that you didn't didn't think you were going to. When I, when I think back to just, you know, kind of not even, not even really needing email. I, you know, I, you're just going to have one. Yeah, I dream of I dream of like like dumbing down my smartphone, like not having any way for people to like text me or, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, or actually, I, I want to be able to get texts, but I don't want to be able to surf the internet or use any apps, or you know what I'm saying? Just have like a phone or a text. Oh yeah, and that's it. I can help you. I I have I have an old flip phone. It doesn't do the internet, and everybody that I know knows that I that I won't text them but they know that i can receive texts so you know occasionally somebody will text me you know once once a week or something and they'll know that i got it but they know that i'm not gonna send one back it's one of these phones with text you have to hit each button three times right to make a day and then so they know i'm not going to text them back um so yeah i'm pretty i know this will not last because there's going to come a time when they they won't let you have this phone anymore but i'm hanging on yeah. as long as i can no it's going mean, honestly because like if you have the thing like i find myself like if i have my phone i'm diving into it it's hard to resist and then i find myself like what am i doing i just went like i just walked like you know half a mile i don't even know what i walked past i was just like looking at my phone the whole time I'm, <laughs> like i'm lucky i didn't get hit by a truck or something <laughs> you know, like, yeah uh, it's, oh it's addictive because yeah. my wife has an iphone yeah. oh if i'm just sitting there next to her you know she sets it down mm. i'll just kind of idly you know, start moving around and like, you know, this is so dumb. I'm not even, there's nothing I need to know. I'll, I'll check the little sports center thing and there's not even a game going on. Yeah. It's just like, it's really, it's sick. Yeah. It's sick. It's not good. I need to, I need to fix it. I need to, I need to go get a flip phone or something and try to, you know, dial, dial back in time a little bit. But, um, you know, we, uh, yeah. we have just a little bit of time left and I want to make sure I get to some stuff. Uh, first of all, um, you know, when did you like your publication history? Like, when did you start to get uh, some yeses? And how did you find your, you know, how did you find your way into print and to McSweeney's? And you know, how did this latest story collection come to be? And can you talk a bit about how that fin- how you finally broke through. Um, yeah, I, I, the the whole my whole twenties, I guess. Once I got out of uh, MFA, I started sending out stories and never never got any published um well i guess there was one the journal at the university of southern maine about <laughs> a story um for me back in those days that was you know it was like the only thing so i was sending out you know i'd send out stories and then um i wrote i wrote my first novel i wrote half of it um in mfa and then kind of half of it out and i it didn't get published. It didn't wind up getting published, but you know, I, I I wrote it like it was going to. You know, and I revised it, and it was 340 pages, and I, I sent it to agents, and you know, in those days, you sent them the first 25 pages in an envelope, and then if they wanted to see the rest, they would ask for the rest. So you know, I had some of them at 
see the rest and I would get a little excited and then they, you know, they wouldn't want to do anything. So I was, I think I was young enough to be kind of cavalier about it. And I just thought, well, okay, I'm just going to write the next one. That's okay. If this one didn't get published, it didn't really hurt my feelings all that much. Um, and I just went into the next one and that, that turned out to be Arkansas. And I could feel, I could feel when I was writing that I had found some kind of rhythm I'd found some kind of, of sound to the sentences that that I liked, you know, and that I kind of realized that I'd been searching for, and and so it just kind of gave me a new enthusiasm, and and I I wrote I wrote Arkansas, and the problem with the previous novel mostly was that nothing nothing dramatic happened in it, you know, which seems like something you want to think about before you start writing a novel, <laughs> right? You know, what 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 might happen that might be dramatic. So, so I, you know, I didn't make that mistake again. I, and so Arkansas was about these small-time drug mules and stuff. So there was, was that kind of stuff happening. And when I got done with that, I started doing the same thing, sending out to agents, and the same thing happened. Couldn't, couldn't get one. But that time, I knew, I knew that that book was good. So I, I didn't, I couldn't just let it go. Um, so I just kind of kept thinking about how to, how to do this and. I was so far off the map, though, that I didn't even know that McSweeney's published books at that time. I knew they're quarterly, um, but somebody somebody told me, "Oh, you should send it to McSweeney's." You know, they they say that they they read everything that's sent to them. They send it to them. So you know, Manila Envelope sent it to them, and, and so this is after many many years of of just being rejected by agents and, and journals. And what to me was lightning fast, it was maybe a month later they called me and were, you know, saying they were interested in it. And I just kind of couldn't believe it because I, I was used to five, six months and then they say no, or you just don't hear from them at all. And this was, this was a month later and, and they were calling me and they were Who's they? interested. Uh, well, it was Eli... Horowitz, okay, yeah. the one who was calling me. Okay, I thought it was who, like um, I thought it was like a group or something. Like they put you on a conference call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that no, that would be that would be good for the so Everything doesn't come so. No, it was it was this guy Eli who you know I guess he wound up being kind of running the place over yeah, there. I had him on the, I had him on the show I had him on the show a while back when he. Uh, okay. When he was doing his interactive, uh, you know, ebook participatory. Secret history, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so he, he called me, and I, I remember having a conversation with him. When I worked at these warehouses and stuff, I would never let on that I was trying to be a writer. Because, you know, this was complicated, and I didn't want to talk about it. So I was working at this auto glass warehouse. You know, I saw these windshields stacked, and we're... we're working and, and I, the phone rings and I could tell by the area code so I, I stepped out on the loading dock and I was talking to Eli and then my boss was you know like motioning me back in like what the hell are you doing you know t- taking a phone call right now you know and I was like I was like hey uh, give me just a minute I think I think my book's going to get published you know and I think he didn't know what to think like I was being a smart ass <laughs> or something it's McSweeney it it's McSweeney's just, man give me give me five yeah <laughs> Right. It's it's McSweeney's back off. So 
Yeah, so that was kind of the culmination of the weirdness, you know, of doing, of working those jobs by day and then writing by night. And finally came together there. That's so, awesome. But everything was so streamlined with them that it didn't seem real to me. They were, it was just like, hey, you know, if this is free, we'll publish it. You know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And then I'm just left there to think, you know, did, what does that mean? Did that just happen? Right. I don't, it's real. So I wound up not telling my wife about it for a long time, you know, maybe a month. Really? Weeks. Yeah, because I just kind of didn't, I couldn't, I don't know. I just, it just didn't seem like it could be real. It was just so fast and easy. Um, and I, it just been so long that everything took so long and was so difficult. And you, know, you kind of get this feeling like there's there's a hundred firewalls between you and being published, right? You know, and then some guy just calls you and says like, "Yeah, yeah, we'll do it." <laughs> sure, right. you know. So yeah, I finally got the the paper contract and all that, and then I think I felt then I you know then it then it became simple in my mind. I was like, "Oh well, okay, they're gonna print up a bunch of copies and sell them, and they're gonna be." bookstores okay yeah i can get my mind around this so um, and that launch so, and that launch yeah. it's a good place to land yeah yeah it was good i mean like i say i i honestly didn't know a ton about them i really i'd been you know not off the grid like where you have a reality show about you but i mean i was off the grid and that i just i wouldn't have known what the what the the hot new publishers were or anything like that um but i you know i learned about them after signing on with them and everything, and turned out to really, really like them. It's been a good fit. Well, and now you've got a story collection coming out, and um, you know you've written the novels. Was there? I mean, obviously, there's a difference working in the short form versus working in the long form. Like, do you have a preference? Yeah, I prefer the novels. I, I could see myself writing many more novels, but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind if I didn't write any more stories. Really? That'd be okay with me. Why? Yeah, I mean they're well, they're they're just to me they're so much more difficult. You know, it's like you got to do you got to do a, a, a kind of a magic trick in each one, and I feel like the the standard that they're that they're judged by is so high that it's just it's kind of scary. Yeah, you know, I do the same thing. You know, when I'm reading short story, I feel like okay. All right, you're going to have to do a terrible original trick that's never been done, and it's going to have to seem natural. And it's like, okay, can you do it or not? And you got ten. When I'm reading a novel, it's more like, yep, you got you got ten pages, you know. And it's, it's, if you don't do that, it's no good. And when I'm reading a novel, it's more like, you know, hey, this is a fun ride. I'll go along. I'll go along with this. You know, how was that? Oh, well, it was pretty good. Right. Um, and you know, but it, it suits me better, I think, just to kind of idle and, and not rush anything and, and kind of figure out where, where I'm going to get to. And, um, the, and then on yeah, the side, I mean, it's, okay, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, it's just, it, it's just, you, you can, you can, you can make a novel work just by, just by working on it and, and keeping it going. And you have so much room to look out and go, okay, I think I'll just go in that general direction. 
Well, yeah, that's oh, a- the story. You know, you you write seven or eight pages of it, and and if you, you can't see how it's gonna how it's gonna do this trick. It's just like, okay, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah, like the longer form, you have a lot more chances to kind of redeem it. And even if there, you know, if there could be like small sections of it or even longer sections of it that don't work as well as, you know, other sections. But if you have enough good in it, then people will generally feel like it was time well spent or you hope that, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's how I feel. So, and then on the side, you write about college football, like kind of like as a, as a different uh, mode, you know, sports journalism. Yeah. Well, yeah, I used to, I, I gave it up this past season. I did it for a few, a few years though. Yeah, for GQ's website and then for Grantland for a couple of years. Um, but once I once I had the the two little guys and the full time professor job and all that, it was too much of a grind. Yeah. So I've since since given it up. So you're a Gators um, you're a Gators fan? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I went to school, so that's that's my team. Okay. That's, I like football, like, I, but I'm conflicted about it. I, like, uh, are you familiar with the writer Steve Allman by any chance? Yeah, mm-hmm. he's got a book uh, called coming out called Against Football, where he it's kind of like a treatise. Where and he's a football fan, but he's basically giving it up because he it's like watching people, um, you know, get brain damage essentially. And you know, I don't know. He he's such a great writer that I I found myself reading the galley and just kind of nodding my head and. I do have sort of a conflict. Like I'm a lifelong football fan, but I do have a conflicted relationship with it now that I think about it, especially pro football, where I feel like it's this giant money machine. Not that college football isn't. Um, and you, you're just sitting there on Sunday watching these guys just obliterate themselves. Uh, do you have any qualms like that when you sit down to watch the Gators or any other team? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, same, as, same as everybody, I guess. I, I do. I don't, I don't like I don't. I don't like that. I mean, you know that they're getting that they're getting concussions and getting permanent damage. But like, I guess like everybody else, I also can't stop watching it. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. I mean, we we've had to have these talks. It's different when it's on TV or if it's your own kids. You know, we've had these started to have these talks already about about our sons playing football. Would that you are, Would you let them? You know. I don't. I don't know. I mean, the talks are are still in progress. It's a really complicated thing, and I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of variables to it as well. You know, we we're up. We're kind of in the on the outskirts of of Minneapolis or of St. Paul up there now in the cornfields, and you know, I would feel like okay, maybe that would be okay. You know, if we lived in Miami, I would say. No, I think that uh, I think that my sons will get obliterated right. by the type of athletes. You know, these are you know all guys who are going to play at FSU and Alabama and Florida. You know, if you're if you're out in a real rural area, not going to be that level. But then there's also it doesn't take that sometimes. You know, sometimes it's just the uh, just the random thing, just the way that they the way they get hit. I was the yeah. I, I was the I, don't know. I was the kicker on my high school team. That's the way to go. I barely got hit at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. See, that's one of those other variables too. You right. know, what if they're what if they're just going to be the kicker? You know, that's fine then. Yeah. I was a shitty oh, kicker. I don't know. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very mediocre. Very mediocre. Uh, <laughs> but it was a fun, you know it was fun Did for us. Any game winning 
no. game-winning kick. My only, the no. only, like our team was just like a running team. I only got one field goal attempt. It was all like extra points and kickoffs, but my, I was 0 for 1 on field goal attempts lifetime, and the, the field goal that I attempted, there was a, a high snap. So I kind of like stutter-stepped, and then I kicked it. Oh. And it was like dead center, but it was a weak kick, and so it hit the crossbar and bounced out. <laughs> so pissed off. Ouch! I'm still. If pissed. it wouldn't have been that high snap, I'm still bitter. I blame the snapper. I do too. Yeah. I, would, I, I mean, I hit it dead. I hit it true, you know. But I, and I kept my head down. I did everything right, but I just, you know, my timing was thrown. So, you know, you can't win them all. Yeah. But uh, listen, man, it's no. been it's been fun talking with you. Uh, I appreciate it, and I congratulate you on the new book, and and wish you well on uh, whatever comes next. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. There you go. That's John Brandon. Go get his story collection. It's called Further Joy. It's out and available from McSweeney's. You can find John online pretty much nowhere, as far as I can tell. It's got a Wikipedia entry. I tried to locate uh, a social media presence or an official website. I couldn't find one. Maybe they exist, but they eluded me. And, uh, you know, I think this is indicative of the uh, fact that John might be a, a man of great intelligence and great restraint. But... Uh, you know, absent that online, you can learn more about his books. And I, I say that in the plural. He's got multiple books available on the uh, McSweeney's imprint. So check it out over at the McSweeney's website. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the music as usual. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the app. Download that Other People app, the official app of this program. Sign up for premium. You can stream every single episode. It's a good thing to do. Support the show. And uh, I would appreciate that. So... Uh, you know, back in town, getting back up to speed. It takes a little bit. That's the thing about vacation. You think you're going to come back and be completely fresh and hit the ground running, but the problem is that you slow down. And then when you get back, uh, the speed of your old life, you know, it hasn't changed. It takes a while to reacclimate. So right now I'm of the mind that I could have used another week. I could have used more. <laughs> I was just starting to relax, and then we had to come home. I was just starting to really settle in. And uh, the truth, in my mind, is that uh, as human beings, we need a month. At minimum. There's 12 months in a year. At least one of them should be spent just sitting on your ass. Why can that not happen? Why can that not be like a cultural value? Just go somewhere beautiful and quiet and sit on your ass until you get bored. And then, once that's happened, sit there another three weeks. See what happens. Please remember that Robert Penn Warren died of prostate cancer and that Moliere died after bursting a blood vessel in a convulsive tubercular coughing fit, and uh, he choked on his blood. That's it for now. Thanks again to John Brandon. Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, I hope you uh, you know enjoyed last week's episodes. I'm talking like I was gone. I wasn't gone. It's sort of confusing, but uh, I, I was personally absent from this desk for a week, but I did post shows. I hope those were good shows. I thought they were, and I will be back, you know, I'll be back again soon. And hopefully at full speed. Back to my uh, chaotic level of uh, discombobulated, attention deficit, caffeinated chaos. (laughs) 